Thank you for being on With Miska podcast, Toby. And um, about your last name, I thought about it at home. I'm going to guess. Toby. Let's see. Is it Ganger? Ganger. It's close. It's close. Nobody gets it right. It's just Ganger. 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 Like what? anger. Anger, Ganger. With a G. What, what do you think is the logic there? Why is it not Ganger? I don't know. I've tried to figure out if it has German background or British or something like that. And um, I think there is some word in Old English, Ganger is like an overseer of a gang. Gang. And, uh, yeah. And then there's yeah. a word in, I think, Old German. Like where, OG. Where it's like Ganger <laughs> or something, which means like a wanderer. Yes. So, that sounds, both of those sound really cool. I, sure. Why not? I'll take it. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> well, where's your background from? Is it from Germany? Uh, no, it's, uh, well, according to 23andMe, it's fifty-something uh, percent Ashkenazi Jewish, mostly like Poland, Ukraine area. Yeah. And then the other side is, um, uh, there's like 20% British, and then there's like 20% that's either French or German. So. So it seems to be quite all around also. I I guess so. Where were you born in where are you born? LA. Actually Santa Monica. Nice. Yeah. That I don't meet many people who are actually born here. Yeah. Can't escape it. How was it growing up here? How was it being born? It was it was better than the alternative. Uh, yeah. Uh I mean growing up here is uh I I wouldn't say that my upbringing was the normal upbringing. So, you know, with the acting stuff and, you know, going to school at a younger age and all that kind of stuff. So I had a very interesting upbringing. Yeah, yeah, well, I know a little bit, but uh, please tell me more. What acting stuff? Um, just I, I started as a baby um, doing print stuff and baby. Com commercials. Yeah, 18 months old, I was my first was my first job. Yeah. Um, I think it was for Kodak uh, Films. Um, Commercials, uh, TV shows, movies, um, voice work, cartoons, um, all that stuff. Yeah, I did that pretty regularly until I was about 14. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I watched the beginning of the Cock Rockadoodle. Oh, did you? <laughs> yes. It's on YouTube. Like, okay. like officially, not even ripped. Okay. So yeah. it was like Roger Rabbit for kids. I think that's what they were going for, yeah. It was really cool. Like you were the, at least in the first half, you were the main kid and you turned yeah. into a cat. <laughs> I was, I was, yeah. I that, I think that was their initial thing is they were going to try to make uh, more of an animated film and then Roger Rabbit was really successful. Yeah. And then they tried to then model that. And I think that's one of the reasons why it didn't do so well in the box office. I think it looked great for kids film, for the, for it, the audience, whoever it, it was has, for. It did, it it sold a lot in terms of VHS and DVD and still on streaming platforms. I mean, so it's had longevity and there are a lot of people who like it. Yeah. Um, I know this because I never got paid any of the residuals for it. So multiple times I have discussed with the union um, the amounts of money that they owe me, which is several million dollars at this point, which I will never get. Why not? Who was the producer? Disney. Uh, it wasn't Disney, no. Okay. Um, uh, Samuel Goldwyn was the original producer. Or it might have been, it was Don Bluth, the guy who made All Dogs Go to Heaven. Dragon Slayer. 
Did he? I think so. I don't know. Because they had a computer game and I played that in Finland. It was one of the first computer games where it was animated. I'm, I'm... It was like the graphics were really good. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure. And yes. maybe I I don't know. I but he's I a big know. name. I know that Don he, Bluth. He yeah he did a few uh, successful films and whatever it was they set up a production company in Ireland. We shot it there and after the film finished, they filed for bankruptcy, sold off the parts to different companies, and everybody denied that they were liable for the contracts, and. The union basically did nothing to help. Yeah, I was wondering, what does SAG say? What they said was that the initial company that was the signatory, the SAG signatory on the contracts was the one liable. So once it went to auction, uh, bankruptcy auction, they said that they have little ability to enforce any of the contracts because they were no longer under SAG signatory. So I had to go to lawyers outside of SAG. And what do they say? At this, I mean, what they say now is basically the statute of limitations uh, is uh, limits the amount that you can get, number one. And um, due to the time and the complexity of the situation, that the amount of money it would require to win would probably be more than you'd be able to get at this point. <sighs> so it's just one of those things where you just suck it up and say, you got me industry. <laughs> yeah. Because someone is still getting money from the, really? what I watched today. Yeah, I think, I, as far as I know, I think MGM is the one that owns it, or at least some subsidiary therein, but... Yeah. Yeah. Was it the biggest thing you did? Um, biggest production, for sure. Uh, I mean, there were some shows that I did that were big shows at the time. I think I was in the show Cheers during the final season. Um, what did you do in that? I just uh, a guest spot. I was the brother of a girl that Frasier was dating. Okay. I think the episode was called Sunday Dinner, if you want to look it up. And you were like a teenager. I was probably 11 or 12, something like that. Wow. Yeah. How was that? It was fun. Um, I... Trying to remember, I, for some reason, I remember auditioning on Friday the thirteenth and being surprised that I got it. I like, got good news on Friday the thirteenth. Um, I don't know why I remember that. Um, and then the shoot, uh, the guys were just really friendly. Um, mostly, like I, I remember hanging out with Woody Harrelson and playing video games with him in his uh, room. And yeah, uh, I just had a, I had a good time doing it. Yeah, it was my and first I, time in front of a live audience like that. Yeah, that's what I thought. I've been in one sitcom taping and it's taped almost like a play, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole, the, you have a whole live audience listening to you, so there's different energy in the room, yeah. for sure. Well, I'm very curious about you. You said that you started doing that at 18, first modeling gigs. 18 months. 18, 18 months, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> what's your, you have kids now. Yeah. They are probably, how old are they? Uh, seven, five, and... and and seven months. Oh, you have a new one, seven yeah. months. Yeah. So what's your opinion, especially like bringing really small kids to show business? No. <laughs> no? No. I mean, look, like, it's very, there are pros and cons, right? Obviously, uh, you know, there's certain aspects of your personality that you can develop through learning how to perform and 
uh, being able to interact with the different type of people that you will um, in the industry. However, I think there's a lot of things that you have to deal with. I think about it now and I think about uh, the rejection was a dual-edged sword in the sense of like, you get used to the rejection so much that you develop a sort of resiliency as you get older in life that you're able to, you know, withstand the rejections and ups and downs of life. However, there is a certain line that you sometimes can cross where you start to expect rejection. And so, yeah, and that becomes a part of the psyche. Um, and, you know, with kids, you're dealing with fragile egos and, uh, you know, emotions and, you know, why are they rejecting you? It's difficult to understand at that age. It's difficult to understand they just want a redhead. It's not because you're not good enough. It's not because you didn't perform right or they think you're ugly or whatever it is. Yeah. They just wanted that look or, or, you know, the, this kid's uh, father is friends with the producer. So they went that direction. You know, that happens. It's happened to me many times. And so it's difficult for kids to understand that. And with all the, the pressures to look a certain way, to act a certain way. And, you know, I had experience with some predatorial people in the industry um, that I would not want my kids to be around. Yeah. So I would be very hesitant. And if they were to do it, it would be extremely, I'd be like a helicopter parent trying to guard them best as best as possible. Yeah. Have they showed any interest? Uh, not specifically in that. I mean, they both kind of just like to perform yeah. in general, but not, in, we haven't, not in any structured way so far. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but, but it seems like that you're definitely not actively taking them anywhere no no, no. How, how why did you get how did you get started uh i as far as i know this story is something like uh somebody came to my parents and you know they saw my brother and i there together we had really bright blonde hair which wasn't as common as one might think yeah. uh, at that time um and somebody said you should get them an agent a hollywood moment hollywood moment yeah you should get them an agent and so they did um i i it's not as easy i think to get into the industry as it was back then but um that's that's how it went we got had an agent and within you know months we were doing commercial myself and my older brother yeah yeah and but your parents were not in the industry no no they were not I think my mom had been a, a guest on a couple of talk shows or yeah. something because she was a, a power lifter. She was a world record holder in powerlifting. Wow. And so That's she, very unique. It, very, yeah, bizarre. But but you yeah. did some sports too. I saw it yeah. from your music video, The Moment. Is it called The Moment? A Moment. A Moment. Yeah, yeah. You were doing some gymnastics and some other stuff. There was, yeah. as a kid. Uh, yeah, I, I did gymnastics for, again, I started as a baby. Um, like I think nine months old because I had my older brother was went into a class and so start I doing what wondering. nine uh, months I could roll before I could walk <laughs> yeah what what time do they do babies learn to roll um, usually kids start gymnastics classes usually start around eighteen months old and they you can 
teach them how to roll basically once they can walk. Yeah. But, but in, nine months old. In my case, yeah. Do you, do you know what you were doing at first? No, I mean, I just heard how it went down, but yeah. I wasn't, I don't remember. Of course. Um, but I did that until I was about 15. I was competing, you know, pretty seriously, like on regional level, national level, um, until uh, <laughs> I think I just had too many fears of some of the crazy stuff we had to do at the higher levels. And uh, I backed out of it. But then I ended up coaching gymnastics for 17 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, what gymnastics did you do as a kid? Like, I don't uh, know what they're called. All, the, all of them. All around uh, floor, pummel horse, rings, vaults, parallel bars, and high bar. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, I guess you can still do something. Yeah, no, I, I guess obviously not, <laughs> not to the extent I could then. I, I could pretty much do most of this stuff. I'm just going to hurt a lot more the next day. Yeah. And, and my flexibility is not what it used to be. So I would love to be, when I was a kid, I, almost were able to do the what's the backflip that you use your hands back handspring yeah back handspring i was very close to it when i was a teenager and i think it's still some kind of dream of mine that i would like to do it i if i was teaching still i could probably get you doing it in a couple of weeks maybe if i get some extra money i'll <laughs> hire you as a coach oh geez because i can do cartwheels and all that fine yeah so i think with some training it it would be can you do that kind of stuff yeah of course i mean i i when i was teaching i for a long time i taught adult classes you have people come in 60 years old who never did it before and it's just about breaking it down and one step at a time teaching your body how to go through the movements yeah and how to be able to support the weight and the strain of it because i was able to yeah. do a front flip and with back, I just didn't have the courage. I always went a little bit sideways, yeah. which I was able to do. But you need, it's kind of, it's a scary moment when you go totally. Oh, yeah. But this is why you need to have the proper preparation to do it. So you can actually feel yourself going through the movement safely. Yes. So you train yourself to do the right movement as opposed to like the fear thing, which is going over the shoulder. Anyway. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Do you still do it yourself? Like when, do you still coach? No, no, no. I quit. Um, I quit. Jeez, oh, when did I quit? About seven years ago. Yeah. Is, is when I quit. It was just, uh, my son was born and I had to find a way to actually be able to pay the bills. Yeah. <laughs> and I was starting to ache my shoulders from like spotting cheerleaders on backhand springs. Uh, so I, it was, it was time. Yeah. It was time. Yeah, you, you said that you need to pay the bills. Well, you're a rapper, and I I have um, listened to your music a lot, especially now uh, before this podcast, and we, we're going to talk about that. But you said you need to pay your bills. Like, what, what else do you do? How do you pay your bills? Because uh, I was thinking, like, you're a rapper, you have been an actor, and you probably have some something else, too. I mean, at the time, the music was not paying the bills. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so when I quit that job, I, I would, went to teaching like a school, teaching yeah. school kind of environment. I was mostly teaching like economics, political science, uh, a little bit of Spanish. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I, uh, got, I had a sales job for a couple of years that, you know, none of these were great paying jobs, but they were better than what I was making uh, doing the gymnastics. Because the image that I have of you is that you have some kind of, the reason why I was asking so specifically, because I thought that you have some kind of 
cool investing job and you make lots of money, <laughs> which allows you to get really expensive videos and produce <laughs> all that. So I, I mean, and you had Whoa. the Bitcoin song too. Yeah, I mean that's that's the big part. I mean, yeah. So back in two thousand, you seem wealthy. That's no, what I meant. Well, not now. I I've, I lost most of it, unfortunately. But anyways, uh, I'm definitely in a much much better place than I was then, and that's mostly due to the to the Bitcoin and you know being able to then channel that into other investments that you know up to this point has sustained me um and hopefully i can figure out a way to make this stuff sustain me going yes forward. it was i i listened to your song can you say the exact name if someone wants to find it on youtube the bitcoin song oh the bitcoin song uh welcome to the blockchain yeah, was, and it's by the artist there's two uh well, it's yeah. I mean, it was uh, my it's myself, and then the producer. His name was Decap. Yes. Uh, yeah. So and we how just do you did spell it? it Decap. D E D E C A P. Yes. Welcome to the blockchain. Welcome to the blockchain. But it was actually pretty educational, and I like how you have the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. So how much of it? You said that you did it as a joke. Well, not necessarily a joke. It was one of those things where you know he happened to be visiting LA, and we were just talking about Bitcoin, and I was I was trying to get him into it and engaged in it because I was like this to me. This was like this new thing that was going to be bigger than the internet, and and you know everybody was like, yeah, all right, shut up already with the Bitcoin stuff. Yes, but Decat was like, man, we should make a song about that. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know, uh, it's kind of corny, <laughs> and. Um, you know, and he talked me into it, and eventually we just we just made that song and we gave it away, uh, and said if you like the song, send us a tip. Yes, and we got quite a lot of tips at the time. Yeah, it was good money. That's good, and it's uh, it's probably still big. I didn't watch any view counts or anything, but it's probably is it big? Um, it still gets a lot of plays. Uh, yeah. You know, people aren't sending tips anymore because, you know, Bitcoin was like $200 back then. Now it's, you know, much more. So they're not going to be, they're not willing to send it as much. Um, it's a different sort of cultural environment now. But uh, uh, yeah, it, I, it still gets a lot of plays on all the streaming platforms and on YouTube and, and all that. And I get messages from people all over the world. So I love cool. that. I love that you did a lyric video. Mm. Because especially for us foreigners, it helps with mm. rap music when there's lyrics. Right. Yeah. So what's your? Op I have a little bit of money in Bitcoin, very little. But what what what's what's going on? <laughs> what's your opinion? Oh, I mean, I'm not. Or the whole for the whole crypto market. Uh, the whole crypto market is crypto market as a whole. That's a different animal. I mean, I, Bitcoin. Uh, I don't think is going anywhere. Um, I think it's going to just continue to grow over time, especially as you have economic crises all over the world and sovereign debt all the way through the roof and dollar potentially losing its reserve status and things like that. Um, I Sorry? The dollar potentially re losing its reserve, global reserve status. Can you please tell more about that? I, uh, I, I'm sort of understanding, yeah. but can you, what does no, it mean? Uh, well, I mean, up, I guess for the last, uh, geez, I don't know how many, since World War II, basically, uh, the dollar has been the global reserve currency. Yes. All governments and businesses that do any sort of international trade hold dollars in order to be the intermediary. Yes. So the U.S. has been able to get away with exporting a lot of debt overseas. <laughs> exporting uh, a lot of debt. in Because our money is basically printed out of debt, right? It's, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know if you get into... Uh, 
complicated economics. Oh, no, I, I'm very but... interested. Okay. We, uh, we are here for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the way that most dollars are created is via loans being issued in the U.S., right? Yes. So somebody goes into a bank and gets a loan. It's just numbers then get entered into the system. And now this new money has been created. Okay. Right. That's, that's owed that. Um, so basically every, the vast majority of, of dollars in the United States are essentially representing debt that's owed to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, so the point is just that one of the reasons we've been relatively safe from extreme inflation over time is the fact that we have the global reserve currency status and all these other countries overseas have to hold dollars in order to, uh, not only to, to transact in business, but it becomes like a, um, what's the word, a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense of like, because it was one of the more stable currencies, other countries would buy and hold dollars to, to be able to hold value. And that in itself makes it more stable. Yes. Right. So if it loses that status, all those dollars then come home. Yes. And then you have inflation go through the roof, even more so than it is now. So uh, I think given that environment, uh, it is likely, and, and, and given inflation issues all over the world and hyperinflation in some countries, I think it's likely that you see more and more people gravitating towards something like Bitcoin that's outside of the realm of uh, central bank manipulation. Yes. Um, I mean, we can go further down that rabbit hole, but... Uh, yes, please. <laughs> um, I just... I, I I think that we're... I mean, I, I don't want to overcomplicate it because there's a lot of unpacking to do on every level. But yeah. I would say that um, it would seem to me that the logical explanation or the logical path that Bitcoin takes is always going to be either it goes to zero or it's worth, you know, a million dollars per coin plus. Um, because it's the hardest money that's ever been created. Um, you can't create any more of it. And it's, there's nobody in charge of it. So there's nobody who can wake up tomorrow and decide, you know what, I'm going to increase the supply by X amount or, you know. Uh, so I think that, that gives it a leg up uh, amongst every other cryptocurrency in the sense that they they all have third-party trust to some extent. And Bitcoin doesn't really require the third-party trust. Have we seen a big crash in price in the last year? Of course. But that's kind of the general machinations of uh, what goes on in crypto. It's There's a lot of speculation that goes on in these hype cycles and the real question is, is are more people adopting it long-term? Are, is there more infrastructure being built? Are more of the scammers and scumbags uh, getting exposed and getting kicked out? Um, and from that, I would say that that is continuing to happen. The only question is uh, to what extent these large uh, financial firms are able to, uh, manipulate prices based off of, um, uh, you know, lack of regulation or anything like that. So it remains to be seen, but I don't think it's going to go away. And I think it's going to continue to grow in price. Um, yeah, that, I haven't really talked about Bitcoin in a while. So I'm kind of 
all over the place and explaining it. But uh, I do think it's, is it is worthwhile for everybody to have some percentage of their savings in Bitcoin. Yeah. And that not financial advice, just my personal opinion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, new for me, how big distinction you made with Bitcoin and the other cryptos, mm. what you just said. Mm. That was news for me. Yeah, I mean, I I think that people overestimate how important all these little uh, innovations are um, with, you know, something that's a faster transaction and something that can do this or that. Uh, number one is I think those in a sense, operate as like a training ground for what can be built on top of Bitcoin in the future. I could be wrong. Um, <laughs> it's possible. I kind of, the way I envision it is like, we're speaking in English right now. It's not your native language, right? Yes. But I've been to Finland. Pretty much everybody there speaks English. Yeah. You know, I've been to other countries. Everybody there, there speaks English. That's the main language in the world. But you also have Mandarin, you have Arabic, you have Spanish, you have these other languages that are spoken. They're not necessarily the main languages, but they're spoken prominently. And I do expect to see that in crypto where you might see like three, four, five, six, maybe 10 currencies that stick around because of whatever attributes that they have. But I think the one that I think is irreplaceable, irreplaceable is Bitcoin because of the fact that there is nobody in charge of it. Yeah. And that that limits the risk. And um, and because it's also, the tech is simple and outdated relative to these new ones, there's a lot more narrow um, of a window for hacks and exploits and things like that. Yeah. Where you've seen a lot of these like Ethereum contracts get exploited and lose $300 million or, you know, things like that. So anyway yeah and what's your opinion of who <laughs> created it satoshi nakamoto That's yeah the name but what's your opinion uh i i don't have any like there's there's theories there are theories all over the internet about it could have been uh you know this guy hal finney who's a programmer there could have been um i know that there was one uh finnish guy involved very early on as well, that there's some have theorized he might have been involved if it was a group of people. Uh, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I yeah. When it comes to the tech side of the stuff, I know literally nothing. I'm like I I my space was like economics and game theory, but like the cryptography and all that stuff, I'm I don't get it. Yeah, either. yeah. <laughs> and you said that you've been in Finland. And yeah. I've I'd heard about it, but I just remembered. So, music or what brought you to Finland? Yeah, it was the music. Um, so I I knew this producer, uh, Henka. Yes. Um, who he lived out here for Lance. Henka Lanz. Yeah, exactly. Yes. MGI he goes by, but he yes he lived out here for actually I I knew him from like twenty years ago. We uh when I was making music with a group that I was in, or even before that. Uh, we had sent stuff back and forth on the internet. He was making beats. And I think I even recorded a couple of things uh, to his music. And then when he came out here and was living out here, I met up with him and we would hang out and he's a good guy and he's incredibly talented. And so when I got back into making music again, I was like, I, I really liked his, um, 
his style. He had a, a very good ear for catchy melody. And that's not something that happens a lot in the hip hop world because it's mostly percussion driven. Yeah. And I really loved this, this melody, um, the melodies that he had. So, and that's the route I wanted to go and kind of uh, delve more into some pop vibes. And uh, I, yeah, I reached out to him and we started working on the songs and I was thinking about like the cost of recording out here and, you know, doing everything, sending files back and forth. And I realized the cost would be about the same if I just went over there Yeah, and, and just were, was in the same space with them and we, we were able to work. So I went there summer of 2018 and we worked on, we did like half the songs in about two weeks. And then I went there again, summer 2019 and we did the second half of the songs. Yeah. And the, the problem that we hit was that, um, we were going to meet up the person who was supposed to mix the album was in Copenhagen in Denmark. And then COVID hit. And so we were trying to figure out how to get everything mixed properly, but we couldn't travel anywhere. And so we did this process of like trying to mix songs by like sending files back and forth. And it was a nightmare because I mean, you know, imagine if you're editing a film or something and you're telling the editor, you know, that spot at, yeah. 47 seconds in there. Can you turn that up three decibels? And then they go do that. They re-render the whole thing. They send it back to you and you go, okay, let's try two. <laughs> and then you send that back. And the whole thing, every time it takes a day or two to go back and forth, it was a nightmare. And we wasted probably like six months of that. It's no, no fault on the engineer himself, but I, I just recently had to, I have to go back. We started just re getting all the mixes redone on all the songs. So you're going to Finland. No, no. I mean, I, I would like to, because I am working on a new album with Henka um, okay. as well, um, which I'm about six songs into. Uh, I would like Free to Free Machine. Again. No, Free Machine is done. Yes. Uh, the next album coming out, which tentatively is called Power, Gla Power Glass. Yes. Uh, I want to, I, I would like to be able to go there again, because there's nothing like being in the same room with somebody working on stuff. Yeah. And also, like, I found going... To going anywhere really, but going to Finland specifically. Yeah. Um, as I'm sure you know, it's a very quiet place. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of space, both physically and people will just give you a lot of mental space because nobody bothers you, right? There's not a lot of yeah. small talk and all this stuff. So um, one being taken out of your everyday life puts you in a space where like that song, a moment, Yes. was written there in Finland when I got there and I just spent the day walking around Helsinki, uh, you know, and nobody interacts with you. I just had the headphones on. And that was that moment that I needed to like process all the stuff that was going on in my life. And I don't think I would have gotten that here. Um, but specifically there, like you have the nature and the fact that it was like a safe environment to walk around. You're not going to get like jumped on the street of Helsinki and robbed. Yes. It's, it's not likely anyways. Um, so it kind of opens up a headspace for you. Like I grew up in LA, so I'm used to like, if you're walking down the street, like you're always looking out in front of you. Like, what's that, what's that dude doing? What does he want? What do you, there's that little paranoid element to kind of keep you safe at all times. That's so interesting to hear. I, I, I can yeah. relate to it, but 
I come from, to me, it's flipped. Right. So you grew up like that. I mean, yeah, you, you kind of just, I don't think I was ever taught anything like yeah. that. You just notice stuff over time of people. Um, you start to notice like somebody who looks suspicious or somebody who looks like they might, you know, be up to something and you, you know, you feel a presence behind you and you're like, you know, you want to check out, see what that's about. And it's, I didn't realize the extent to which it took up my headspace until I didn't feel that threat. And wow. then I found myself able to walk around the city and just completely be in this meditative state of being able to listen to the music and write songs. So most of those songs for the album were actually written as I was walking around Helsinki. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> for the, sorry, for the free machine. Free machine the, yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that makes me sad for us <laughs> because we live in LA. Yeah, it is. It is kind of sad. It's kind of sad. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. It's just, it's, it's, it's a sad reality because you see that it can exist. Yeah. It can exist. A place where you have a million people living and you don't feel in a state of perpetual, I guess, anxiety. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe there's some like trauma feeding into that, but I think it's it's something that a lot of people have, you know, in a big city, especially depending on what part you came into. You just you got to be able to pick off, like, uh, pick out predators, or they'll pick you out. <laughs> yeah, at first that sounds unbelievable, but I have lived in Hollywood for five years, so I can relate to it, especially mm. now the way how shady it is there. So I know that's true. And I just realized that that's the way I walk in many places. And that makes me melancholic. It, yeah, it is, it is kind of sad, especially yeah. if it's your own neighborhood. You want to be able to walk around. But I mean, that's just the reality we live in. Ironically, like I remember when I was 14, I was living in Ecuador for a while. And at the time there was like kidnappings going on and guerrilla warfare. And you had uh, Colombian drug cartels that were, all over the place. And I felt a lot safer walking down the street there than I did growing up here. Wow. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. Wh why do you think it is so unsafe here? Oh my God. That's, <laughs> that's a massive question. Uh, I, I know. I, that's why I'm asking it, not answering. Uh, gosh. Uh, I mean, of course, there'd be a lot of speculation on my part, but I think a lot of it has to do with... You can speculate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, certain economic policies that have created situations where, for example, fathers are not in homes as much as they used to. Yeah. And we know globally, no matter what country you're in, what race, ethnicity, religion, we know that the number one predictor of... Uh, violent crime, going to prison, uh, teenage pregnancy, all these kinds of things, whether or not you have a father in the home. Okay. And so, you know, here, <laughs> I remember there was reading, there was some senator who wrote some urgent letter back in the 60s about how, uh, you know, we have a problem now that it's up to 20, 25% of kids being born without fathers are growing up without fathers in the home. And now, you know, some areas it's 70, 75%, 80% or higher without a father in the home. So that's one thing that causes violence. Um, 
because uh, for a lot of reasons, aside from that, like the only people in, in certain areas who are masculine figures are people who are violent people. Um, so that's one aspect of it. I mean, we also had the drug war that went on here in the U.S. In, in 80s or? Well, it started in the 60s, but... Uh, yeah, it's it started in the sixties, the same time as as a lot of those other programs. Yeah, actually, what do you, what aspect of the drug war do you mean? How does it affect today? Well, I mean, it, I think it affected in the sense that you, the same way that we saw mafia, the the mob gain power and homicides went up through the roof during prohibition during the nineteen twenties when they pro prohibited alcohol. Yes, so people still were going to drink alcohol. It was just a question of where you were going to get it from. And so these groups were able to consolidate power by being extremely violent um, as the way that they do business. Instead of like, I'm going to provide a better product and good customer service, yeah. it was, you know, I'm just going to be ruthless. And similar thing here with gangs and the drug wars. Um, and there was certainly like, there was government involvement as well, you know, in order to get money for wars, uh, Iran Contra, there was uh, there was an issue with the CIA was basically providing crack in the inner city in Los Angeles to gangs, and they were selling it to them in order to get funds to uh, to be able to fight war in Nicaragua. Yeah, I have heard about yeah. it, and is that true? Uh, I mean, I've seen like large, uh, I mean, articles written in legitimate publications that you know, basically explain the whole thing and yeah. how it went down. I mean, at, at this extent, to this extent, like anything that we're talking about or what the government is, is or isn't doing, who the hell knows anymore? Yeah. Because, you know, as an old uh, Soviet friend once told me, the only way that we knew the government was telling the, uh, excuse me, the only way we knew something was true was when the government denied it. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. And I never really understood that until until recently, so... Yeah. 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 I yeah. Feel. So you said that these policies have created that kids grow up without fathers. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of components to that. Yeah. I, I would argue also there's, you know, issues with min, minimum wage laws. A lot of minimum wage laws keep, actually keep people in certain, like young people and uh, immigrants and in minority communities, it keeps them from actually getting into the workforce. Because um, they are yeah. too low, because uh, it's it's riskier for an employer to hire a child, a kid. Let's say, yeah, if you want to hire a fifteen year old kid, it's riskier than hiring somebody who's like twenty five because they don't have any experience. Uh, you know, so usually you would pay them less, but yes. if you can't pay them less than like the minimum wage. Right, you can't pay them less than the minimum wage. Uh, it it basically eliminates, uh, like I always say, the, the the minimum wage is always zero, right? So, which means that the, that you, if you are not able to produce at a level that is exceeds the minimum wage that you would be able to get paid, yes, you're just not going to get that job. Yeah. You're just not going to have the job anywhere. So you will essentially be making zero. And there's an, um, several economists who've gone through and looked at every minimum wage hike in American history and have seen that, for example, every single time they hike the minimum wage, um, 
both youth unemployment and black unemployment went up dramatically. So the like these are issues that have, uh, you know, as we we know that that the the best way to get into the middle class in the U.S., which it's almost impossible to not get in the middle class in the U.S. if you um, uh, have a job, <laughs> finish high school, and you don't get pregnant basically until you're married. Yeah, it's almost impossible to not get into the middle class in the U.S. Uh, but because of these situations, it's very difficult for people to get legitimate jobs and work their way up. Um, because game, minimum wage work experience. Uh, because minimum wage is too high. Would you remove minimum wage? Um, is it's is complicated. I mean, if nothing else, I would say like there are there are countries. I think like Denmark, for example, has a scaled thing where if you're under a certain age, you know, there's a minimum wage for this age. And if you're over, then you can have a certain wage, if nothing else to take that into consideration. Cause you need to have young people, um, having jobs and, and getting work experience and learning those skills and seeing opportunity beyond what's outside their door. Um, I, there's, a, I mean, there's a, a million things. I'm not saying any one of these things is what is causing yeah. the crime, but we can see that there's been dramatic increases in crime um, since these were implemented. Yeah. And they, the increases happening are happening primarily in areas most affected by, uh, by these laws, which would be like I, where my dad came from in rural Mississippi that has similar issues, right? It's not to the same extent because poverty in rural areas is not, um, uh, it's what's the word? It's not like consolidated. It's not all concentrated in one yeah. area where if you have a bunch of people that are in, uh, in poverty and are dealing with the repercussions of the social family breakdown and civilizational breakdown, and they're all in one area, a bunch of kids growing up without fathers, the impact of that is dramatic on the society. And yeah. I also think like America itself has uh, lost a lot of its, um, lost, <laughs> these are kind of complicated issues. It's, it's lost a lot of its way in the sense of, um, we don't have anything here in this country that people can find meaning in. Um, and I think that there is a, a lot of people who are just desperately thirsty for meaning and people are, uh, you know, developing all kinds of, uh, vices and mental illnesses as a result of feeling so isolated and broken and disconnected. Uh, and you know, I'm not a religious person myself, but. Oh, you're not. No. Because I saw some of your videos and I wanted to talk about that too. Oh, sure. We can discuss. Yeah. I'm not a religious person myself, but they, um, but, uh, you know, we don't have religion really anymore because of the way cities are structured. We don't really have much community anymore. Um, there's no real like social centers. You're not a, like it amongst my generation and younger. It's almost like frowned upon to look at, to be proud of the United States or the, any of this patriotic stuff while it may seem silly to some of us, it's also a uniting thing that can help 
form bonds and community. Yeah. And there's just none of this stuff in the US for a lot of people. And so I just see a lot of people just wandering through life broken and, you know, going to going to drugs or going to more and more extreme behavior that may manifest in in violence. Yeah. I mean, I think that may be one reason why we have as many mass shootings as we do here is just there's a lot of broken people. Yeah. Yeah. We we I was talking with a friend of mine about the homeless situation because there's so many homeless. Mm. What 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 do you think should be done and why nothing is done? <sighs> That's a difficult conversation also. I was having that with somebody today and I don't really know the answer. I just yeah. know that what they're doing in the name of empathy doesn't help homeless people. And it's certainly not empathetic towards, you know, people who are just trying to go about living their lives and can't take their family to the beach or to a park or anything like that without uh, having often mentally, severely mentally ill or drugged up uh, homeless people coming after you. And I, I was homeless for a while. Okay? Oh, you were? Like, I understand economic homelessness is something that can happen, but it's a relatively small percentage of what's going on right now. And I, you know, I, I don't know how you solve it. It would certainly help if, you know, we stopped going to war every five seconds and then have, having veterans coming home with PTSD. It certainly would help if, you know, there was better mechanisms for treating drug addiction um, because those two things right there are the, probably the biggest contributor to mental illness. But you also have like other cities in other states that are literally putting their homeless people on buses and sending them to Los Angeles. And is that true? I've heard oh, about it. Oh, it's absolutely true. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and having grown up here, I mean, homelessness was always something going on. I mean, it, it wasn't like, you know, there were no homeless people and all of a sudden there was a bunch. It, it was always that way. And yeah. we have good weather. So that's why... Um, uh, a lot of people came here for that, but, uh, you know, in recent years, there's been not just an increase in numbers, but the, the kind of homeless person you were encountering seemed to be a lot more hostile and aggressive. And, um, I think that there's a lot of groups that claim to be working on behalf of the homeless who are more interested in utilizing that issue to, get more funds and power than to actually help them or anybody else. Yes. It's not empathetic to me to have drug addicted or mentally ill people wandering the streets and have families walking by terrified. Yeah. It's not empathy for anybody. What do you think about the law that America may have had? I might be wrong that uh, government would be allowed to uh, get a person against their will and put them in treatment that changed in 80s right i th i think so yeah uh, i don't know the specifics of it but i definitely have very mixed feelings about that giving the government power to claim anybody's mentally ill and put them away uh i probably hold opinions that you know at some point the government might decide would make me mentally ill and yeah should put me i mean i just that kind of power I don't like that at all. I understand the impetus of it because I know that something has to be done. Yeah. But I'm I'm not an expert in, in that issue at all. So I just I'm just kind of like what my general opinion is on it. I, I don't know how to solve that problem. Yeah. Just 
I mean, the, the drug and mental illness problem seems to be the majority of it, though. Uh, that's what it looks like to me also. Yeah. yeah. That, that's so huge thing, what you said, that when you were in Finland, it opened something in your mind because you didn't use energy for being careful. Yeah, it was, it was very strange. I've noticed it on the second day I was there and it's just, 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 I don't, I don't know what it was. It was just like all of a sudden you could, the, the anxiety level just dropped yeah. significantly. And it's like, if you're meditating, right. And you, you're feeling a little anxious or whatever, and you sit down and meditate after five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, you start to regulate and calm down. That's what it felt like. But it was just a very, uh, I just noticed it in a very quick and profound way of like, holy, like something's very different. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Finland yeah. You should use that as some kind of ad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The song, A Moment, and especially the video, mm. I think it was really unique and touching. I really liked it. The video was so, it, it was very touching. I loved it a lot. Oh, Can you, you tell about the the video and the, all the thoughts behind it? Um, yeah, and so it's unique for a rap song too, <laughs> because you're not twerking. <laughs> oh god! Um, so please tell <laughs> me about the song and the video. Yeah, the song. Um, so the song is basically just um, you know we, everybody has stuff going on in their lives that will be stressing them out, you know, at varying levels of of intensity. You know, somebody might have a difficult time at work or they're having financial troubles or their car just broke down. Somebody they know is sick, whatever it is. So in the song, I was just going on about, you know, the everyday kind of struggles that you have with in my particular life. You know, my dad had had a stroke and he was in the hospital and, you know, everyday bickering with your wife about stupid stuff and, you know, worrying about your kids and, and their future. And being a father because you're... Yeah. There's no grandfather anymore like that. Well, he's still alive. Yes. Um, but yeah. Uh, Did you had, anyway, you had a line about that, that. I need to be a father, especially. Something about that. Yeah. Um, you were by your father's uh, bedside and you, was, yeah. you said something about the importance of being a father. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I think it was something about it, it having more meaning to me now that mine is in the hospital. Yes. Yeah, it, it had... Yeah, it carried a lot more weight because you kind of, yeah, everything gets gets amplified in emotion. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that song was really to me about going into your head and dealing with and processing all of these things um, so that I could come out on the other end as a functional person in society because this stuff starts to eat at you over time everybody has stuff that they're going through yeah and you see people all the time like ready to burst because it's very difficult to find time or space or whatever to deal with this stuff so i was just like that song was just asking for let me just have a moment so i can just deal with the stuff so i can come out and be a, a normal human being again yeah And and that's yeah, and that's what the video was kind of representing was just taking place in these little uh, vignettes that were sort of representing different memories and and just sort of processing them and dealing with it and then being able to to go back out again into the world. Well, the whole video concept was really cool. Who directed it? 
It was directed by somebody named Joshua Reese. Yes. Yeah. So the video concept was really cool. Though, can you tell about that? Um, that you used the soundstage and it right. was because they were your real life moments, but even though you were on the bed, it was soundstage. That right. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I, we kind of wanted to to let the soundstage sort of represent the mind, so to speak. Right. Okay. And so yeah. all these different little vignettes happening within that space are like memories that are being lit by attention at that particular time. Yeah. Right. And so they're all happening within that one space. And it was very well set designed because when you're in close up, it looks exactly that you're really in that space. But when you go further, it's right. the soundstage. I, I love that idea. Right. Thank you. Thank you. And it was also like, I felt like, um, like having grown up in that environment as well. I felt like that was a big sort of influence because, uh, you know, a lot of these um, issues that you're dealing with are things that probably started back then when yeah. you were working on these stages. And there was pictures of you as a kid. There were pictures of me as a kid. And I, a, a wedding yeah. video and all that. Yeah, Wait, yeah exactly. I wanted, I wanted to like, I wanted to show that relationship between like uh, me being the son of a father and also being a father to son. Yes. And like this dynamic where we fall into these different roles, you know, can I, when I'm in the bed with the kids, I'm the father, but I'm sitting next to, when I'm sitting next to him in the hospital, I'm the kid, but you know, you're the same person and how do you balance these two things? And that was kind of the, uh, what we wanted to explore in the video. Um, so I think the home videos helped tie everything together. Yeah. Where did you shoot it? Uh, Sony Studios in Culver City. Wow. Yeah. Because the opening shot is, it's a big soundstage. Yeah. Th those are always so exciting. Yeah, that was, that was one of the cool things about uh, the pandemic, because we were doing that during the pandemic, is that we were able to get a pretty damn good rate on, yeah. that, on that sound studio, which otherwise would have been completely booked up. I know. So... Of course, sometimes I get small speaking parts and I get to go to soundstage, but I also sometimes do background work, mm. extra work. So I, I have been in those quite a lot. Right. It's Even though you're playing a nurse, it's still exciting to be in the soundstage. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because who knows how many amazing things were done in there. Yeah. 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 And I just, like, it was, it was really awesome for me to step into that place with something that we, that I created, you know, the song that I created and we helped put together the treatment with the director and to help fulfill the vision that was my vision. Yeah. That was great because growing up doing the acting stuff, uh, <laughs> you're almost never doing anything that was your vision. And many times you might be doing something that might actually compromise what you might want to do. Yeah. But you need to make a living or you need to, you know, you can't turn down jobs when you're a nobody. I know. <laughs> so, uh, being able to do that and have it be my production, that, that was great. That was great. I, I, I can get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Why did you stop acting as a teenager? Why did it stop? Um, so <clears throat> when I was about 12 or 13, um, I was, I, I mean, I'm still short now, but I was obviously short then as well. So I would go in and on auditions with kids my age and the kids my age would be a foot taller than me. 
and so it got to the point where I couldn't fit at my age group. But then when they would try to put me in a, a little bit younger, like 10 years old. Which sounds like a good idea. It sounds like a good idea in theory. However, yes. even though we were the same size, because I was a gymnast, I had I was pretty like muscular. Yeah. And my voice was deep yes. or relatively at, the, at that age. And so it, I didn't fit. I couldn't really play a 10-year-old who was kind of like jacked yeah. with a deep voice. So uh, it just, everything just kind of dried up at once. Luckily, the last year that I was really working, I think it was when I was 14, I got in with this looping group, an ADR group that basically goes in and either adds lines and replaces lines after the movie has been done. And I think we did like 40 movies in one year. Uh, Forrest Gump, uh, Waterworld, Jumanji, oh. Billy Madison. So what can you explain what do you do for those? Uh for example, uh people would probably know the scene from Forrest Gump where uh there are kids chasing him on bicycles while he's yes. running. And the girl's like, run Forrest, run, right? Uh so these kids are shouting stuff at him. I'm gonna get you, Forrest, get back here, boy. Like all this kind of stuff. Yeah. That's not recorded while they were shooting the film. And then afterwards, they want to add those add those sounds in to to give that uh, aesthetic uh, the to give that environment um, that sound and um, and so they hire somebody to come in and do that. Yes, and usually it's a group of people. Or or is uh, oh no, well, uh, I have done it a couple yeah. of days when they were filming something in Europe, so they wanted people with accents. Mm. So there was like ten foreigners there. But sorry, how was it for you? Uh, yeah, I mean they. Well, the group, so the group, basically, they would contact the group and then the group would say, I have, you know, this guy, this guy, and this guy that fit yeah. what you need. And then they would send us to go do it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I might need somebody to speak Spanish on one thing. They might need uh, somebody to do like an Australian accent or a Southern yeah. accent on something. And so they would have you go in and do that. There were movies where I replaced the person's voice for the whole movie. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was fun. I mean, the the cool thing about those jobs are is that um, uh, they're very quick. You don't have to worry about hair and makeup and wardrobe and all that kind of stuff. You get in, you basically do your stuff. You're there a couple hours. You still get SAG scale and you still get the residuals years later. I know. Yeah. So, so I mean, <laughs> and if it's these relatively successful movies, like Forrest Gump, Jumanji, whatever, these movies are still playing. So you still get residual. I mean, it's not, it's not a lot, but. But still, it's money in the mailbox. Yeah, better than nothing. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that those are very wanted jobs. Those loop group jobs. Yeah, I, I was actually, I was telling a story uh, this morning. I think it was about how a, resid a residual for one of those jobs uh, is what got me out of sleep of being homeless. Basically, um, it was. Very a very quick story is just that I, I had about ten dollars left to last, last me for the week. I had a job teaching gymnastics, but I didn't have a place to live, so I was sleeping in my car or on the sidewalk when it was too hot. And uh, on the sidewalk, yeah, hmm. that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, yeah, my my mom took all the money from, that I made from acting. So uh, I oh. when I was eighteen, uh, thought I had hundreds of thousands of dollars that were there waiting for me and there was nothing but anyways I had how to, are you oh. with her now yeah 
<laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but I had like $10 for the week and I, I, I was not the type to like give money to other people. Uh, for whatever reason, I just instinctually gave that last $10 to this other dude who was sleeping down the street. And as soon as I did, I was like, oh my God, what did I do? That was really stupid. Like there was no thought process involved in it. And literally the next day I had a check come in for like $2,000 for Lion King 2 that I yeah. did voice in. A Lion King 2. Yeah. And I was able to put first, last security deposit and get a, get an apartment. And so like that was, <laughs> that was a lot of things. So I mean, number one, that those residual checks saved my, my butt. Yeah. But it also like taught me a little lesson about <laughs> having a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Um, What's your, um, who were you in Lion King 2? I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> I seriously don't. I, if I recall, it had a British accent. So I, I think it might've been something related to Scar. Yeah. But I don't, when I look through the movie, I, I can't, I don't remember what it was. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe my part was cut out. It's possible that's yeah. happened in other movies that I was in, which is also very it, embarrassing when that happened. It has happened to me too. Yeah. I remember uh, I did a movie called Liar Liar with Jim Carrey and I had a scene on this airplane. Wow. And uh, I like, I was going to the theater with the friends, like, here it comes, here's my seat. <laughs> and then and, cut it out. Like you can see the top of my head and that's it. Uh, I have been <laughs> in that situation also. Uh, I know. <laughs> really embarrassing so the work started to dry up but then you found the sound work yes voice. so that sustained me for like a year and yeah. then uh and then after that brute group sort of disbanded for whatever reason i don't remember and yeah that was kind of kind of the end of it for a while and so yeah i was because i started college at, at 13 so i was going to school at that time and i was working at a coffee shop and yeah, I didn't really have any time or money or space to to keep pursuing it. Are you going to go back to acting? You know, it's, it's funny because I feel like I talked to you about this like two years ago. Yeah. Um, I, if, if I, I'm, I have a manager now who is sending me on some auditions. Cool. Uh, or not, you don't go on auditions anymore. You do self-tapes, I guess. But I, I, I do most of my self tapes here. Oh, there you go. Yeah, this is mainly a self. Well, this is both. Yes, yeah. perfect. Yeah, doctor self tape. <laughs> doctor yeah. self tape. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I have mixed feelings about it because number one, I don't think there's a lot of good stuff being made. That okay, interests me. Um, and part of wanting to do it is wanting to have roles that are fulfilling and interesting but I'm a nobody. So who am I to like shout to the heavens demanding a fulfilling role? Yeah. So uh, it's, you know, I'm going to keep experimenting with it and we'll see how the music stuff goes. And maybe if I end up in a, a better place where I can more easily get to choose what I do, then I would love to be a part of it. It's one, one of the things that I really want to do actually is having done these two videos you know, they both have sort of a short film component to them. Yes. Um, Can you say the name of the car video song? Oh yeah. Uh, can't take it away. Are yeah. Can't take it away. Yeah. Yeah. So that has like a very, uh, short film component to it. And it's also connected to a moment. Um, 
in storyline. There's there's their connected storylines. Okay. Yeah. One is the sort of the conscious mind. One is the unconscious mind, and it's it's a little complex. And probably I'm the only one who you know cares about what, that. What what was the? Yeah. Please tell me the connection. I I saw both of the videos. Um. So basically, the a moment was basically processing processing stuff that is going that is going on uh, consciously in your yes. head, like memories and stresses and fears and anxieties, whatever. Uh, the other video was more of this unconscious battle between these different, um, aspects of yourself. Um, I found myself dealing with, uh, the struggle of being, I, I was always fancied myself to be like, I'm a nice guy. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm a good guy. It's, it's, it's who I am, you know? And, and then, uh, I realized that in most of the cases where I would be upset that people were mistreating me because I wasn't, uh, you know, because I was nice. Like, why are they treating me this way? I was coming from a place of weakness. And when you're weak, uh, the niceness really means nothing. Uh, And once you start to, it's very easy to start building up resentment and if you have any situation where you have power, that resentment can come out in very ugly ways. And so I feel like a lot of the people who think of themselves as nice are just weak. And um, yeah. Uh, so anyways, sorry, I'm... I'm no, I'm, this is interesting. Instead of being nice, you try to be... So that was what was going on in the video is yeah. I had two parts of myself. One that was like this over-civilized person... Yeah who is like, you know, does everything by the book and, you know, treats everybody, you know, super nice and all these things. That was the one character. And that kind of represented what I had been my whole life. And the other one is kind of this under-civilized character who's kind of more aggressive and he's, you know, uh, more carefree and more dominant and, these are both, I, the realization is that they were both aspects of my personality. One was just suppressed. Yes. One was suppressed waiting for power and it was just hiding underneath it. And the moment that I had some power, I started to see it emerge and I'm like, oh my God, what is this ugly aspect of myself? So I had to figure out how to really uh, connect with it, battle with it, gain control over it, put it on a leash and tame it. And so that's kind of what happens in this video is there's this, it's chasing, one is chasing the other and they get to, you know, basically go up all these levels of the unconscious to the roof and they have this struggle and, uh, you know, one throws the other through this portal basically. Yeah. And then he puts the other one's jacket on. And this is the sign of like integrating the two into one person who is now, uh, a more functional person because he's integrated all the aspects of himself in a way that both uh, protects himself and also is more honest with the world. It sounds great. I I mean, it's a lot of. I it's it's probably a, one of the things that only I'm gonna appreciate fully. No, but I think we all have that yeah. same struggle. 
it yeah. might be bigger or smaller, depending who you are. I mean, I think so. Like I know in, uh, was it Jungian psychology, they have the notion of the, the shadow self or the hintergedanke or something they call it, where it's like the, the self that exists behind. And there's a struggle about integrating that into yourself. Yes. Uh, so, I, I mean, I don't know if I'm a proponent of Jungian psychology, but the, the concept exists. Yes. Uh, and I think a lot of people can, can relate to that. Um, I agree. Yeah. So you being a rapper, you have been doing it at least publicly over 10 years. Uh, yeah. Well, the group that I was in before we started in 2001. Wow. And we put out, I think we had one full length LP and then we had an EP that we put out and we were together about eight or nine years. So being, you have been doing that for so long and now you rap about your family and all that, and this is the way age we are. So what would you like to happen to your rap career? Are you going to be touring the world? What are the next steps that you would like to see? <laughs> because your songs yeah. are great. Thank you. They are really good and they are so, everything is so well done. Mm. It's very well done and you're an Thank excellent you. rapper. Thank so you. So there's Appreciate there's an audience for you, but what, what do you hope? Uh, you know, this, this is kind of where the, the whole music, I mean, excuse me, the whole, uh, child actor thing comes up where it's like, not only do I not assume that things will go the way that I want to, but even when they go the way I want to, I still am waiting for, okay, what's the catch going to be? You know, like when I got Rockadoodle, for example, and then I didn't get any of the money from it. Yeah. So I, I don't know what's going to happen with the music. I feel really confident about what I made, my mindset right now is that I'm the best in the world at doing what I do. Whether or not other do, people do are going to resonate phrase with that. It, what do you do? You don't need to. I mean, what, what do you feel you do? Well, it's, I think, I think stylistically it's like, you know, uh, the kinds of lyrics that are being written, the way that they're structured, uh, you know, what I'm discussing, what the content, the subject matter, uh, the melodies that are going along with it. Yeah. Obviously, I, I'm not I'm not a figure who fits within what is going on right now, and I get that. And if I were to attempt to fit in with what was going on now, it would just probably look like a suboptimal version of whatever is already happening. So I'm just leaning into what it is that I want to do. Yeah, sorry and, I interrupted you. Yeah, and I I feel bad for that. Okay, no, it's can I, um, can I yeah. ask again? I'm I'm still not gonna cut this part, but. So you said that you feel that you're the best in what you do. The best you, in what yeah. I do. Yeah, I mean, I, because I, I feel like there's nobody that can do what I'm, like if they try to do what I'm doing with the, with the melodies and the lyrics and the content and all that stuff, yeah. I don't think that there's anybody in the world who can do what I'm doing. The question though is, does anybody like what I'm doing? <laughs> we don't know. Yes. Right? I like it. The people that have heard it so far have really liked it, but you know, you don't know until you put it out there. I feel with this record, you know, I I referred to it early on as like my bridge to the rest of the world because from the time that I was little, I was looking for a way to connect with other people in the world. I I I started high school when I was eight. I graduated, I finished at 12, started college at 13. I was always around people who were seven, eight, nine years older than me. I always thought very differently than the people around me. And I didn't have... I didn't feel connected to anybody around me. And 
And so like, I feel like there's, there's an old saying that I like, I forget who said it, but it was something like the thing about comedy that's great is that if you make people laugh while their mouth is open, you can shove the truth in. And I feel like melody is sort of a similar thing. If you can get people singing along to a melody, their brain then opens up to what you're saying behind that melody. Yeah. And that gives me a way to connect to other people, just like who I am as a person, what ideas I'm, I'm playing with at the time in a world where I often feel like on an Island. So that to me, this album is that bridge. And I'm hoping that on the other end of that bridge is people who connect to it, but we have to find out. (laughs) What's your, um, relationship to touring um so i mean even with my group that i used to be in we didn't do much touring Uh, especially now like are you gonna tour are you gonna go to clubs it's difficult with i mean having three kids yeah Um, so if i were to do it i would have to probably do it in spurts of like maybe two weeks here or two weeks there or something like that or um, cause my, my kids are at least this year anyways, they're going to be homeschooled. Um, you know, maybe there's some way we can bring them along, but that sounds I, good. You know, I, we have to, I, we, that's a long conversation for the family to figure out what, but <laughs> I have to, I have to just cross that bridge when we come to it. Cause who knows if that's even going to happen. <laughs> that's the way they used to do it. Well, yeah, Go I mean, to clubs, right? Of course. Um, but, but things like, have changed now. There's internet. Well, you need to have some, uh, you need to have an audience. Yeah. Right. Like if I call up a club in Boise, Idaho and try to book a date, they're going to be like, who are you? Why should we put aside a night for you? I'll need to be able to show them. Look, I have, you know, 3000 listeners in Boise. Yeah. So we don't know yet how that's going to play out. But we can know soon. The songs might become hits. I'm confident. Like, I feel like if I get the right um, momentum behind it, that I'm confident that there will be people that connect with it over the, all over the world, actually. I mean, I I even feel like probably because of Henka's uh, part of it, that there's a large European influence in it. Uh, Yes. The melodies are, have a large European influence. Uh, influence to it and so hopefully that there's an audience over there as well um uh, so i'm confident it will reach these places but until we do uh, it's very difficult to like sit down with the wife and discuss you know what what are we going to do with this hypothetical situation yeah what does a free machine mean for you Mm. that's the name of the album right yeah um so the album basically deals with that balance of figuring out what it means to be an individual and also be part of larger community or relationships and things like that. What, what are the responsibilities? How, how can you separate the two? How do you define yourself, you know, as a product of Western civilization and, you know, Judeo-Christian ethics and, uh, you know, America, California, Los Angeles, you know, growing up the way I did with my parents and all this sort of things, it's very difficult to separate like what is Toby in that process and what is all these other things. There's a huge overlap. And then it's like, what is your responsibility to these things? Uh, How do you, in the relationships that you have, obviously 
any relationship requires you sacrificing some aspect of yourself for the relationship, what is that line? How much do you sacrifice? At, at what point are, are you sacrificing so much of yourself that it's actually hurting both sides of the relationship? And, you know, it's just dealing with these sorts of dynamics in uh, kind of all aspects of the life uh, from, you know, just everyday life to marriage, to being a father, to uh, having more like philosophical or metaphysical discussions of like what it means to be a self and all that kind of stuff. Um, but so I, I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Um, it's, it's, the the thing that's different about it is is just like combining these sort of serious and complex conversations with like catchy pop melodies. Yeah. Cuz I don't think, I mean I could be just ignorant of it, but I don't think there's anything that has been done like that. Before. I agree. And that's so, why I liked it. Well, where can people find your stuff? Uh, well, all the old stuff is on, uh, it's on all the streaming platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, whatever. Uh, and it, the new stuff will be there as well. I also have tobyganger.com, which will be revamped pretty soon. And hopefully we'll have everything up there, including the new stuff and merchandise and all that kind of stuff. And YouTube also. YouTube, YouTube as well. Yeah. YouTube has the, the music videos, um, There's two videos I did uh, for my previous stuff 10 years ago with a Finnish director. Hannu Aukia. Hannu Aukia. From No Office. From No Office, yeah. Yeah, I saw many familiar uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, we did it around, uh, the, well, second one. No, no, we did both of them around his house, yeah. Yeah, in Hollywood. I used to live very close there too. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah, we had we had like no budget for those They looked great. I mean, he, Hanu did a fantastic yeah. job and he not only directed them and filmed them, but he edited everything as well. Um, yeah, he did a great job. He's uh, awesome. We're talking like budgets that were like 500 bucks or something for a video like that. Yeah. So shout out to Hanu. Shout out to Hanu. Yeah. Thank you, Toby Ganger. Thank you, man. It is great to have you here. I'm going to be, be looking forward to more of your new songs. I only heard two. <laughs> Thank you.